The Los Angeles Review of Books relies on the support of readers and listeners like you to publish reviews, essays, interviews, and podcasts for free online. Donations this month will go twice as far through the generous matching grant of an anonymous donor. Please support our work and keep the LARB Radio Hour going strong by donating today at lareviewbooks.org slash donate. Welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by both my wonderful co-hosts, Eric Newman and Medea Ocher, for our annual Best of edition. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. Hi, you guys. Well, yeah, we've made it. We're almost there. The end of 2022. It went by fast. It went by fast. In some ways, in some ways it felt like it was dragging on, but it was another, <laughs> you know, year three of the pandemic. We're making our, our way through or yeah, third full year of the pandemic. But I'm excited to talk about all of our picks because while it was a weird year and everything else, it felt like an oddly productive year in culture. Yeah, I think so. I'm excited to talk about it too. I put this list together last night and it was nice to remember some of these things that I've completely forgotten reading or watching or listening to. <laughs> Same, yeah. From the spring to now feels like a really long time, in my opinion. A lot of my picks, I think, were from about, you know, six months ago or so it was nice to return to them. Yeah, I was saved by one movie that I saw last night. Really snuck right in. Whoa. And it's on the list. Ooh. And I will tell you guys about it. Tantalizing. Well, but let's start with books. Who wants to go first on books? I'll go first on books. I have to say, like, it was kind of a weird reading year for me. Like, there were not as many books as I normally am like, oh, my God, that was the absolute best of the year. But the one that I really found myself coming back to and recommending to a bunch of different people was Douglas Stewart's Young Mungo. And, you know, I interviewed him on the show. I just really love this book accomplishes an unusual feat in that it manages to hit all the buttons for me, which is that it's a gay romance. It's coming of age story. And it's deeply immersive and felt fresh because it's about working class, two working class boys in Glasgow, Scotland. And so you got to feel something that was fresh and different, super immersive. The language is great. So it just checked all the boxes for me and thoroughly enjoyed it. Is that your only one that you have? Yeah, I was, a like I said, it was a weak year for books. I'll pick up the slack <laughs> in, in movies and TV shows, but a weak year of books for me. Well, I'm embarrassed because this is like the part of our best of where I always feel like I know what I'm talking about a little bit more than in other categories. So I really went off. So I'll I'll tell you mine and I'll start with people that we spoke with because those are sometimes how I find some of my favorite books. The first one that I want to point out was Catherine Scanlon's excellent novel, Kick the Latch. Day and I interviewed her about it. I just loved entering this harrowing world of professional horse racing. And the pace of the book really like fit the subject. It was just out of the gate so fast. And yet, you know, you're really going through this woman's whole life almost, you know, starting when she's a teenager, ending 
She ends up in a very different place from where she starts work-wise. And I loved that it was using real-life transcripts that Catherine had after interviewing this woman who it's based off of and then kind of just whittling those transcripts down to the bone, to the essentials. And it was just such an exciting reading experience for me and really inspired me and made me rethink, you know, also the connection between nonfiction and fiction and, like, how much there is still to be done in that realm as the something kind of in between so I, I loved that book. I also really loved Eun Lee's novel, Book of Goose. I thought it was super surprising, not what I imagined at all. And it's just depiction of these kind of disobedient, mischievous, enterprising young women who figure out how to take the gruesome details of their lives and turn them into art also inspired me. And the, the language in that was really beautiful. We also spoke, Eric, you and I, with Ruth Wilson Gilmore about her book, Abolition Geography, Essays Towards Liberation. I feel like that was like a political masterclass. You know, it was just on a level where I was like, whoa, I'm so ignorant about so much and there's so much more complexity to things I believe in um, and understanding how society is structured, how policing is kind of delegated across society, what is actually being protected when it comes to criminalization. It's not people's lives as often as it is people's property. It was just a super exciting book because I think it took a lot of things I believe on an intuitive level and showed me the really complex politics of them. And when we spoke with Ruth, she was just so generous in breaking everything down. I also loved, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep on going. I also really loved, um, speaking of paradigm shifting books, Elvia Wilkes' book, Death by Landscape. I interviewed her. I thought that was a really interesting book and kind of flipping some of the scripts about like purity and impurity, human and animal, like end of the world and before end of the world and showing those aren't always such binary opposing forces and often everything is way more interconnected than we believe and that changing the way we tell a story might actually change how we approach trying to not all perish in climate change or maybe not even, like maybe we already are all perishing and how we could rethink that. That was an amazing book. I also really love talking to Rachel Aviv Dea and I spoke with her about her book, Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories That Make Us. I thought that also shifted a lot of kind of more simplistic narratives about mental illness and talk therapy versus taking drugs and the individual versus society, just in that someone's illness could be a real complex network of kind of like family history, societal treatment, and personal physiology or chemicals or, and I've also just waited for so long for that book from Rachel because she's one of my favorite writers. Okay. So those are all the people that we spoke to. And then on a more personal note, this was the year that I got into Annie Arnaud along with everybody else, I guess. And what a I, great year for you. Yeah, I know. So I was like, when she won the Nobel, I, I cried a little tear because I was so happy. And I was also just happy because I love short books and I feel like short books kind of get 
short shrift or like they're not taken seriously. And all her books are like 100 pages or less, or the ones that I read this year, which were three of her books. So that was really exciting for me that someone who has written, although she's fairly prolific, I guess she's probably written about 20 books. She doesn't write big, imposing books. She writes the slim volume and just that the Nobel Committee would deem that worthy. And that made me very happy. And okay, two more. I read My Phantoms for review this year, the novel by Gwendolyn Riley. And I thought that was just such a really realistic depiction of mother-daughter relationships and kind of like parent-children relationships and the alienation that we can feel towards our parents and the impossibility of knowing someone that doesn't truly know themselves. And that's something I think a lot of children kind of come up against with their parents. And it's really funny and it's also totally devastating. And I laughed a lot and I cried a lot reading that, like really, really cried, which is kind of rare for me in in a novel. So that was an amazing experience. And my all-time happiest reading experience of this year was another Natalia Ginsburg book, Family Lexicon. Have either of you read that? No. It is like such a masterpiece. It takes you through World War II, but all from this very not like an interior place because it actually is very understated and doesn't go into emotions very much, but through like the real material details of someone's life and including language and the the way the family spoke, writing about yourself by writing so closely about other people and what they sound like, all these really, really small details amounting to a life. It was so beautiful and I was so moved reading it. And so that was my favorite book I think I read this year. That is quite a list, Kate. Yeah, I'm so I was so impressed. Say, yeah, really <laughs> Thank impressed. You. I was Thank like, you. I'll be uh, skipping some other categories because I know I really <laughs> went for it in that one. <laughs> All right. What about you, Medea? I had a little bit of a weird year in reading. I had a child and that interrupts your reading life. I don't know if you guys knew that or have heard that at all about how kids might affect what you do on a day-to-day basis. (laughs) But I feel like I still had a pretty good year, so I'm going to start. This is also my fullest category. So I also have Gwendolyn Riley's My Phantoms on my list. I managed to read that. And Kate, I think what you said about it, like about experiencing your life with a person who doesn't know themselves or a parent who doesn't understand themselves and seeing them and understanding them in a way that they never see or never even attempt to see themselves. It's like a really amazing representation of that. And, you know, I'm kind of a sucker for like tough mom books, (laughs) like stories about daughters with difficult moms. Not to imply (laughs) anything about my mom, but um, (laughs) listeners can read into that as much as they want to. Um, but this is a really amazing, funny, and really devastating example of of that kind of story. So that's on my list. I really loved Elif Batuman's Either Or, which I read. I managed to finish it right before the baby was born, and it was like such a delightful, smart, funny reading experience for listeners who might not be aware of of the book. It's a follow-up to The Idiot, which is Elif Batamam's, a novel that she wrote a couple of years ago. And it follows Celine, who's back at Harvard. And it is just such a funny, smart book about college life, but also about like 
intellectual curiosity. Selene is a really interesting character in that she approaches life and even the most basic instinctual of acts like sex, she approaches with like questions. Like she's constantly asking questions about things and takes almost nothing for granted, takes almost no social interaction for granted. And I feel like it's rare to read a book where you have this narrator who's constantly sort of, it's almost like stand-up. It's not because it's not necessarily funny on every single page, but it's stand-up in a way where it's like noticing these small things and asking questions about them. So really like that. And then I, at a certain point, I decided to just ditch contemporary literature because I had, I was on maternity leave and I didn't have to read books for work. And so I, and I didn't finish this book and I'm confessing to it now, but I got halfway through and I feel like that was an achievement in and of itself. And that was The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I would recommend that. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> It's dumb to recommend Thomas Mann, but um, a really fantastic book about Europe before the wars, about Ildis, about being in this really weird microcosm of a sanatorium. And I just want to note for the ages that I I made it halfway through with a three-month-old. I've got one, which is also from the show, which is Check Out 19 by Claire Louise Bennett. Kate and I talked to Claire Louise, and I thought her book was fantastic. I won't dwell on it for too long just so we can get through this. And then I also read a very thin, very lovely book called The Summer Book by Tuve Janssen. I think that's how you say her name. I'm not totally sure, but it's a really beautiful little episodic novel, I guess you would call it, about a grandmother and a little girl on an island spending the summers on this little island and sort of, it's mostly about death but it's really beautiful. Okay, and then I've got two special mentions, which is audiobooks, because I didn't have so much time to read, but I did have a lot of time to just hang out and do nothing. So one special mention for Tina Brown's The Palace Papers, which I listened to while walking around with a baby strapped to my chest, buying coffee and pretzels and like figuring out weird little things to do in Brooklyn. Palace Papers learned a lot about the monarchy that I didn't need to know, but really had fun learning it. And then two is Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen, which was just a delight beginning to end. I've read it like a thousand times. I've never listened to it. And it was just like such a fun was that a, was that an ensemble cast recording? Because I know they've been doing more of those, or was it a single narrator? It was a single narrator. It was Rosamund Pike who did a fantastic. Oh, she has job. a lovely voice. Yeah, and you know it was nice to listen to the book because I've read it, I've taught it. Feels like I'd know it pretty well, but then you just notice so many different little things when you're actually just listening to it, and you kind of just allow it to be like such a pleasure. Like it was just such a pleasure to listen to. That book in particular, it is when you read it, especially as an adult, I think honestly, when you read it outside of a school context, you recognize that it is basically the format for every single successful rom-com you have ever watched or consumed in your life. Like it is such a fundamentally, it's similar to like 
Nella Larson's passing, I think, is like a very ideally plotted novel. Like it's super tight and it follows like it hits all the beats. And I think that like Pride and Prejudice does that for the kind of the romance, you know, it has the right notes for comedy. It's perfect characters. Everybody fits together perfectly. I mean, Austin's a genius, not a surprise to anybody, but she truly is. And Pride and Prejudice is one of those books where you see her talent shine so marvelously. I've never read any Jane Austen. I'm very embarrassed to admit. No, start with Pride and Prejudice. It's one of the absolute best. Oh, yeah, you will love it. You will just have such a nice time. Also, she, it is genius work. I mean, if you're thinking about, like, slim masterpieces, there's really not a word or character out of place in almost all Jane Austen books. And I think this was, like, a fun thing to learn in graduate school, but I think she's really underestimated in terms of the things that she talks about, like class, money, post-colonial. Like, I mean, come for that, I guess, but stay for just, like, how fucking fun it is. It's so fun. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you had a long list like me, Dea. So now I'm not, I don't feel embarrassed. And Eric's the odd one out. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. I bet you'll really rule in this next category, Eric, because I know you go to the movies like every day, it seems. And that category is movies. What was your favorite? This was actually, it was a really good year for movies. There was like a lot of, I mean, it had a couple of unfortunate like shoulder seasons, like that kind of springtime where we're not quite in the summer blockbuster era, but we're not on like the Oscar come lately's was rough. But there were three films that I narrowed it down to that I just really thought were excellent. And I'll start with Everything Everywhere All at Once. So that's directed by, they're collectively known as the Daniels, but it's Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheiner. This is a beautiful movie starring Michelle Yeoh, and there's a stunning performance in there also from Jamie Lee Curtis. And it's basically a beautiful movie. I mean, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. It's about a mother's relationship with her daughter, but it is just so gonzo and weird, and the special effects are amazing. There's a moment where Jamie Lee Curtis in one version of this world is in a lesbian relationship, but in this world, their fingers are hot dogs. So it's that kind of like cuckoo, but like just beautiful to watch and really formally inventive. Loved that movie. Bit of a of a tone shift was Todd Field's Tar, which starred Kate Blanchett. It is, I think a lot of people didn't like it, but it is a beautiful movie. It's kind of very similar to when Tom Ford did the adaptation of A Single Man. They are just sets that I would want to live in and clothes that I would want to live in <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> Eric, that's what I saw last night. And it's oh all my God, I could do. So good. All it's I could so do was dream about that apartment and yes. clothes. Oh my God, her apartment and her like beautifully tailored suits. Do you Everything think it's all feels, the row? It might be, yeah. It's like literally comfort casuals with such a sharp edge to them. And she's just beautiful. It also, thematically, I think it was also interesting to see, and this is not a spoiler alert, but it's basically a movie about sexual harassment and kind of workplace abuse 
in which the harasser, kind of the villain, is Kate Blanchett's character. So seeing that role be played by a woman and who's also a lesbian, so to try to think about power imbalances and how a lot of times they aren't exactly the way that we would imagine them to be, or that people we might see as like marginalized in one place, like when they have power, can also be corrupted and abusive. So I thought that part was interesting, but like Dan said, I'm, girl, I'm just there for the clothes and those set pieces. It was just, just gorgeous. The third movie that I have is Barbarian, which is a horror movie, so also another radical tone shift. And that was a directing and screenwriting debut for Zach Kreger. And what an amazing debut it was. I mean, there's incredible performances. It's comedy horror, so it's very much a horror movie, but Justin Long comes in at one point in one of the stories, and it is just hilarious. I can't give it away why, but it's very hilarious. Bill Skarsgård, who you guys might know as the Skarsgård who played It, is great in that movie early on, and Georgina Campbell kind of carries it the whole way through. It's interesting also formally because it's an inventive horror movie that resets its own narrative at least twice. I mean, I think technically it might be three because you have the first set, but somehow it keeps you engaged and all the pieces do fit together, but you're kind of left being like, wait, why are we focused on this story now? And then it all comes together in the end. My alternates this year were The Black Phone, directed by Scott Derrickson and starring Ethan Hawke. It is terrifying, like literally kept me on the edge of my seat, horrified the entire time. So my final alternate was Official Competition, which is a Spanish film. It's directed by Mariano Cohn and Gaston Duprat, and it stars Antonio Banderas and Penelope Cruz. It's just really fun. It's basically like an Almodovar movie, but it's not an Almodovar movie. And it's all about actors. They basically are trying to bring two super egomaniacal actors with one super egomaniacal director and make them all do a show together that's basically a vanity project for an eccentric billionaire. And it is just laughs from beginning to end and just seeing Three actors really just enjoy being together. That was another one of my alternates, and those were my favorite. It was hard to call it down, but those were my favorite movies from this year. Wow, good list. Great list. And I'm, I'm going to hop in, Kate, because my list is super short, and it's Eric's list. So I'm just going <laughs> to... I'm just going to repeat what Eric said. So Tar, Tar snuck into my list. I've barely seen any movies this year. I didn't really have so much time to go to the movies. But I went last night, I saw Tar. I really, really liked it. Part of it is just the beauty of it. I also found its treatment of power, sexual harassment, gender, and how one's misdeeds haunt us. Really interesting. But yes, much of my time was spent just wishing I could wrap myself in those cashmere sweaters and those beautifully tailored button downs and just wander around my enormous concrete modernist Berlin apartment. That's all I want. It's all I'm really asking for. It's not a <laughs> lot to ask, I think, but it so far hasn't happened to me. Maybe I just have to be a ruthless conductor. So that's one. And then my second one is everything, everywhere, all at once. Also, as I mentioned earlier, yeah, I'm like a total sucker for mother daughter stories. So this is another one. And this one had the added layer of like the mother being a really demanding immigrant mom <laughs> with like 
not really taking the time to know her daughter is how I would, and demanding things of her that her daughter could not could not provide her. Yeah, I think that's accurate. It's always coming from a place of love, but I think it is the immigrant experience part of that that is like, yes, it's coming from a place of love, but I need you to be a particular way because that's the only way I know for you to be successful. And the daughter rebel. I mean, I think that's a, a very common experience, you know, when you're moving from like across generations in an immigrant experience is that the generations born here have more freedoms or they have different ideas. And that sometimes butts up against the parents. But it is, I found it a very moving story, even at that like basic level. Yeah. And I would say just like watching that on screen, it was like therapy for me. Like I was like a total fucking mess. I never have, but I I had to like stop myself from sobbing out loud because I I didn't want to be like so embarrassed in front of everybody for like just having such a hard time at that movie. But yeah, it's also like a really fun. Did you bring your mom an everything bagel afterwards? No, but I felt more kindly towards her than I usually do. Okay. (laughs) Well, that's That's good. That's a a (laughs) worthwhile ticket price. Yeah. Really good. I'll go with mine. And I, speaking of mother-daughter movies, so both my picks come by way of my good friend Jake Perlin's distribution and book publishing company called The Film Desk, which I believe he's had for a pretty long time now, maybe closing in on almost two decades. And The Film Desk re-releases... Older films, mostly in 35 millimeter prints. And it also publishes great books. I probably mentioned their Duras Godard Dialogues book last year when I was talking about Duras, or maybe, I don't know if I mentioned it, but that's just one of the many film books that they've published that I loved because Duras and Godard are brilliant and have many amazing observations about films, but they're also like kind of bitchy with each other which is so funny and kind of like trying to one-up each other a little bit. So I loved that book. But um, this year, the film desk released this movie called Vengeance is Mine. And it's from 1984. I don't even think it had a theatrical release when it first came out. Or if it did, it was super, super brief. It's directed by Michael Romer. And it stars Brooke Adams, who's one of my favorite actresses. Because Days of Heaven is one of my absolute all-time favorite movies. It's a story about her coming back to Providence after her marriage is breaking up and she's like staying with her sister and then she gets really entangled with her next door neighbors and their family is coming apart. And um, there's a mother in that family who's like, maybe she's mentally ill or maybe she's just like a crazy artistic narcissist. She's an artist and she's pretty rough on her daughter. But I think that it's a testament to how non-judgmental Michael Romer's writing and directing style was that I identified with her. That I was like, wow, I can be that kind of mother. Like I can, I can be that rageful. I can be that angry and I can be that selfish, you know, in how I treat my child where I should be like going towards them. But really I'm so caught up in like my anger that I'm spouting off or whatever. So, but to be able to like identify with the person in the film who's acting out like that, I, I thought was kind of amazing. And the movie is just, it's so crazy. Like it unspools the the plot. Just there's like so much plot. It keeps on going. You have no idea where it's going, 
so many things happen, but it's also just like a pretty, you know, realistic drama, but so much happens. And so I thought it was an amazing ride. It really felt like I was on a ride. And I think the Providence setting, it's like gets really into the setting and the factories in Providence, the islands of Rhode Island, you know, it's, it has this like very vernacular American feel. And it's interesting from a German director that he got that fine grained. And I watched it with him and then he was interviewed after by someone. And because it had been such a failure in its day, it was just really moving to see him take in the audience's appreciation and just that something could fail and 40 years later, find an audience, I think is a nice thing to remember. Jake also released the Bresson film, The Devil Probably, from 1977, which I'd always wanted to see because I heard it's one of Dennis Cooper's favorite movies. It's about the generation of 1968, and I think, as, as I read somewhere, it's putting them on trial. It's like all their ideas kind of seem a bit empty. They're all pretty lost and unhappy. There's a lot of, like, early global warming imagery. There's a famous scene where I think it's a seal is like bludgeoned to death and it's intense, but you know, all these kids that are in it are so beautiful and their clothes are amazing. Speaking about great clothes, but like 1970s style, long haired boys style, withering French boys style. I was into it for that, but I have to say it was also a movie where it's like, like a lot of Bresson films, you know, my mind starts to wander. I'm like, this is pretty slow. Like, I don't really know what's happening. And then it was just totally justified to me by the ending is one of the most amazing endings of any film I've ever seen. I felt like, oh, that was worth it. Like, it's okay to be bored in movies at times. It's okay to not follow things. You can still have the most amazing catharsis. And that was my experience with The Devil Probably. So those are both older films. And the, the more recent one that was released this year that I really enjoyed was All the Beauty and the Bloodshed by Laura Poitras about Nan Golden, which I just saw. And I thought that was beautifully done. And I'm such a Nan Golden fan. So to learn more about her story, which, you know, from the bout of sexual dependency, like there's some of stuff with her sister and her sister who committed suicide that is in the foreword of the book. But she goes much more into her sister's history here. It's very, very upsetting and it's moving. And then it kind of puts like all her work in just much deeper context and her, her activism as well. Sometimes I think Nan Golden seems a bit sour as a person, like as much as I love her work. But here you see these moments of happiness where she really does seem so engaged doing these actions and just being with friends. And you can tell like, oh, she had a really hard life. Maybe that's why she's a little sour and friends were her salvation. And it's pretty clear from this movie. I really enjoyed that one too. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our special Best of 2022 show. Okay, so in our next category is one that I thought I wouldn't have anything to say about, but I, I just thought of something, but it's television. I'll let Eric go off on this one first, though, because I'm sure you have a lot, a lot to add. <laughs> As listeners know, we're living through quite a golden moment 
in television. And for me, this was the year that I discovered a number of shows that I have really, really enjoyed on Apple TV. Because Apple TV, because it's not part of cable or any other like bigger service, I had kind of not thought so much about their shows, but there are three that I thought were really, really great this year. These are all multi-season, so listeners have plenty to catch up on if they want to dive in. So the first was Physical. And that is headed up by Rose Byrne, who is an amazing actress and really shines in this show, which basically looks at, it takes it back to the 1980s. That'll be something of a theme in the other shows that I'm going to mention. So it takes it back to the 1980s in San Diego, where she's an aerobics instructor at the very beginning of the kind of aerobics craze. And while this show is very heavy, maybe even a little depressing because she has a, a horrible eating disorder. She's a bulimic, basically. And so you kind of see her struggle with that and struggle with a marriage that she's not happy about and then struggle to make her kind of career and her idea take off, oftentimes hurting other people in the process. It's just a great romp. <laughs> you know, it's not, obviously it is very heavy, but there's so many, it's everything that I love about the 80s, the aerobics videos and the music is amazing. And it made really great companion viewing while I was at the gym. So perhaps an unhealthy choice, but I totally enjoyed it and found the characters to be really, really engaging. Similarly set in the 80s is a show called Acapulco, on Apple TV that is a heartwarming kind of frame story. So it follows basically a very wealthy billionaire who owns a lot of different companies, and he's having his nephew over. I believe it's the nephew's birthday or something. And he's telling him the story of how he became who he was. So it winds us back into the 1980s in Acapulco at a resort, and he is Maximo Gallardo, who is played by Enrique Arizon, who has just incredible timing. It's a very heartwarming series. I would describe it as similar to Schitt's Creek, but dealing with actually difficult things. So he's starting to work at a at this resort, which is run by a, basically a failed actress from L.A. who owns a resort now in Acapulco. And he's trying to make a way for himself and take care of his family. You know, So he has to make decisions about whether or not to pursue a relationship with this one girl that he's really in love with or make enough money so that he can pay for his mom to get eye surgery. But the show manages this really difficult balance of keeping it light but not totally removed. So it feels relatable. You also feel like you're really cheering for him. And what I particularly enjoy is that it does a great job of navigating between English and Spanish. So there are always English subtitles that are kind of baked into the show, but you see that when Maximo and his friends are talking amongst each other, so kind of off stage from the resort, they're always speaking in Spanish, they make jokes in Spanish, and then they switch to English when they're in more of a resort context and then switch to English again in the frame story in the present. So it's really great, very funny, great music. And every single episode, there's like a Spanish language version of hits from the 80s. So that's always like a kind of fun through line and anchor. And the last one that I had is Mythic Quest, which is Rob McElhenney of Always Sunny in Philadelphia fame, does a surprisingly thoughtful and really engaging workplace drama basically about a video game company. So it's a bunch of people that work together at a company that makes a massive multiplayer online game. And so a lot of it is thinking about backstory and how you create characters, how you create platforms. 
And then also how you just tell stories and keep people engaged as creative people who have their own challenges. And this third season, which I've now caught all the way up to, it's still releasing, gets really deep about what it's like to be a creative person and feeling alone a lot of the time or trying to see your vision realized and what it feels like when you can't find your vision or can't really realize a dream. So all three of those definitely helped get me through 2022 and were super, super fun and very engrossing. Nice. I have not seen any of those, not surprisingly. Dea, what were yours? Also, if Apple TV would like to sponsor this podcast, we'd be more than <laughs> right. happy to have them do that. I have more Apple TV shows I could share. <laughs> really? Oh, well, okay. Go ahead, Dea. Mine are pretty popular shows. I'm going to start with the most popular that does not need recommending for me, but I revisited it this year and really had a lot of fun doing it, and that is Seinfeld. Um, I needed <laughs> so good. So I needed good. something that had a lot of episodes that was the stakes were low to nothing, and I hadn't rewatched Seinfeld since I saw it the first time around as a kid and as maybe like in high school. I remember it the last episode that was a big event in our household, but I haven't seen it since then. And it was it really holds up, you guys. It's really funny. I really recommend it. Like if you've got half an hour and you don't want to make a big commitment to anything else, that's a good one. Okay, the other show I really enjoyed this past year was Love is Blind. Um, it is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> trash, trash TV. It's bad, bad, but oh, it's really good. I had so much fun watching it and kind of became obsessed with these people's lives and like the weird decisions that they made and the bad behavior of almost all of the men on that show is confusing and really makes for great TV. Also the hosts who are Nick Lachey and Vanessa Lachey are pretty bad at their job and like so weird, but I feel like add to like the chaos feeling of watching that show where it's like, who knows what's going on or why, but it's really compelling. And then probably the opposite of that show, I discovered the show this year, though it's, it was from a long time ago. It's called Nathan For You. Also, probably people have heard of it. <laughs> and for listeners who've not heard of it, Nathan For You and the rehearsal is hosted by Nathan Fielder, who's a comedian, but I feel like he's more of a performance artist than a comedian. And Nathan For You is based around him going to different small businesses in LA and recommending absolutely outlandish ideas to make their businesses better. Just look it up. I'm not going to go into the various scenarios that this elicits. The rehearsal is a little bit more complicated than that, and that's because Nathan Fielder has been given a huge budget and put on HBO. And the rehearsal is about different people rehearsing big decisions in their lives, either a confession to a friend, having a child, et cetera. I talked about this a little bit in, in a show with Peter Brooks because I think Nathan Fielder does a lot of interesting things and weird things with narrative. Reminds me a lot of Tom McCarthy and The Remainder where it's almost like a wormhole of postmodernism if you watch the show because it is somebody on a reality TV show rehearsing for TV, a real thing that they might do in their lives that they then enact for TV. But the reason that I, I think I can't wholeheartedly recommend it, and maybe this is a spoiler, is that in the end, a child becomes involved 
and the experiment sort of falls apart around this child. If you think about the show, it really makes sense that a child who cannot tell fact from fiction breaks this whole thing apart, but really interesting TV. I would recommend it with some reservations, some ethical reservations. <laughs> and in the end, no ethical reservations in recommending White Lotus, which I saw the last episode of last night and had so much fun watching. I'm diving into that this weekend because I wa- I knew that I would be obsessed with it. And so I had to wait until all the episodes were out because waiting a week between would just kill me. But is it as good as everybody says? Yeah, it's as good as everybody says. I think a funny thing about it is that it's like, if Jane Austen is a rom-com, like if it's like the prototype for a rom-com, White Lotus is based around like the prototype for a detective novel. It's essentially mm. Agatha Christie, oh, but, yeah. Yeah. but 2022, where it's like a bunch of rich people on an island and one of them ends up dead. And it's both who did it and also who dies. So there's like an extra element to the mystery, but it's like, you know, it really, it scratches that like foundational itch of like, what happened to all these these people, all of whom are terrible in their own particular way. So yeah, it's totally a lot of fun. It's great. It's really funny. Jennifer Coolidge is really funny. She's amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to see the second season. Yeah, I think I'm ready for it too. I think I want to dive into White Lotus and start watching some some TV. Yeah, I know, because I don't, I really don't usually watch television, but when I had COVID recently, my attention span maybe wasn't like right for a super long movie in the first few days. And I found TV pretty soothing. Real Housewives, you should watch that. If you need something to really turn your brain off, but is oddly compelling narrative, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills has been a hit in our house. I don't really like The Real Housewives because I can never understand what the relationship between the the women is. It's always seems so forced and fake. And then it's so clear that the producers are just like, all right, fight. Go for it. Oh, it is. It's purely produced and pretty nakedly so. But it's, I don't know how to describe the appeal. I can't account for it because it does go against everything that I believe. The show that I'm going to recommend, you know, I don't think it's great art, but it is enjoyable and it's a very wholesome reality show. So I've now fallen to this weird niche where I like reality shows about real estate, which is so sick. Mm. Um, because I watch Selling Sunset and Selling Sunset and basically watching my nightmare. It's like you're watching the houses that when I drive past, I'm like, oh, like who would carve a, out of the hillside and build like a 20 bedroom house? What sickos? But then when I'm watching on TV, I'm like, ooh, look at that house. Whoa. You know, and I'm like, the conflict in that show is so, false and fake and insane. Like, I can't believe that a workplace would have that much conflict. So it seems so contrived. I still watch it, but I do sometimes question like, wow, I'm really wasting my time. This is insane. And it's pretty awful. A real estate show that has, you know, some conflict, but it's just where the people resolve it. They work things out that I love is called The Parisian Agency. It's on Netflix I think this show has a lot of things going for it. One, it's very wholesome, sweet French family. Yes, they're in this commercial enterprise together and selling multi-gajillion dollar real estate, but they really do seem to have affection for each other. They have conflicts and they work through them. They show them working through the conflict in a way that seems like, I'm sure there's there's meddling by producers, but it does seem somewhat naturalistic. 
They had this sweet grandmother who lives down the block and comes over sometimes and they're like trying to set her up with this, with different guys. They make a little like dating app profile for her. It's funny. She's pretty like spunky woman. The mother was a school teacher. They got into luxury real estate. They're building their business. They don't seem to live like super opulently. It's a family of sons. All the sons are pretty handsome. So that's another nice thing. The French, like anything where I can kind of practice French is really good for me. And the French isn't that complicated. It's fairly easy to understand. So that's, you know, has an educational aspect for me as well. And then like the houses on Selling Sunset or this other one I watched, Selling the OC. Those houses, like they're all, it reminds me of like the way that people who get plastic surgery all start looking like each other. All the houses are just like carbon copies of the other houses. There's nothing that unique. They're all really nice, but they all just look the same. On the Parisian agency, all the houses are unique. They're special. They're like castles. They're houses on the Seine that you have to get to by boat. There's different, you know, apartments uh, with all these like crazy, really specialized details. You can see like why people would spend a lot of money for these places. I mean, with the other houses too, you can, but I don't think they seem as special in the LA, you know, and OC ones because it's just like, they all look the same and these are so unique. And I'm sure like the fact that it's in Europe has a little more cachet too, because they go to super, super gorgeous cities and they're trying to expand their agency. So maybe they'll come back with the third season where they end up doing that. I don't know, but I did enjoy that show. And it's nice to see a reality show where it's about a family that fights sometimes, but also works stuff out and gets along. And it seems realistic. Okay, so now to podcast. Okay, so I had one that I was really into this year, and that was Loud, The History of Reggaeton from Spotify and Futuro Studios. This is a great history of how today's most dominant sound kind of emerged from a cross-pollination of different Caribbean sounds and locations. So it moves from Puerto Rico to Jamaica and Panama. There's also, it kind of gets even more popular once it moves into Colombia and then eventually gets to the United States and takes over the world as it is now. But what I really love beyond the history that it brings you is that it's narrated by an early reggaetonera named Evie Queen, who is still popular, but she kind of started the genre or came up when a bunch of people were starting it and then kind of got pushed to the wayside as bigger, bigger names, especially men usually, took the top billings. And what I love about this podcast, and I think it is kind of a best in practices model for how to do a podcast that organically, or even tell a story that organically moves between languages. So a lot of the interviews and even the host narration is told in a mix of Spanish and English. And what they avoid doing is doing that stop and repeat. So like, oh, what she's saying here, or do some overdub or anything like that. So you can, I mean, obviously I do speak both languages, but I think you can grab it even if you don't speak Spanish you understand the context, the way that the conversation then moves forward in English. And so it's not only a fascinating story, but I think it's a really interesting way of telling a story that straddles two linguistic contexts. So it's an interesting translation story, I think. And that was one of my favorites from this year. That sounds good. 
I have two that I recommend every year, which is Who Weekly and The C Word, both I've listened to for a number of years now, and I dedicated listener to both, and I still really recommend those. One that I picked up this year is called Poog. It is a podcast with Kate Berlant and Jacqueline Novak. They are two comedians and... You know, it's just them talking about different products and different wellness things that they've tried, like exercises or foods or creams. And they kind of just go back and forth about the things that they've tried. And also they're really, they're astute observers of like silly interactions and the silliness of desiring little things like a juicer or a particular face cream. And yet like, just being convinced that you need that dumb thing for yourself. And I feel like I really identify with that feeling, both like the smallness and the intensity of the desire. And then I just really like how it's just two very smart, funny friends chatting with each other. So I recommend Poog. Oh, yeah. I really like Jacqueline Novak a lot. And Kate Berlant, too. They're both really funny. Brilliant. They're both really funny and they're both really smart. It's really fun to hear two of them talk to each other. Mine is Heidi World. That's Molly Lambert's retelling of that Heidi Fleiss scandal. What Molly Lambert did was instead of just taking clips, you know, like all the news clips, and she had actors read out all things that people had said, like Heidi was played by one person. All the different characters were played by different voice actors. I think a lot of who are just Molly Lambert's friends or like local LA people. Um, And so that gave it this really like polyphonic quality. And um, you can tell how much Molly Lambert loves LA, how enthralled she was by all the kind of smaller histories within this story the little side stories and how fun it was to, for her to go a little bit into all of those. And um, I like that she was so unapologetically a character herself in her personality as being a very large part of the way the podcast was structured and her narrative, her take. It was clear that her aim in a lot of this was to emphasize that sex work should be decriminalized, that criminalizing women and prostitutes is really awful and that, you know, the police, the way that Heidi Fleiss was treated by police and like the involvement of the LAPD in the story is also like pointed out again and again. So I I appreciated that take and the kind of like cut away often to her giving her her moral of the story. I just thought it had almost kind of like an old timey sense of storytelling at the heart of it, you know, that she kept on coming back to like, this is the moral of the story, but then also, you know, having a really nice mapping of this like very intricate story. I know this thing of like retelling stories from the 90s is very popular now. I don't know if every like 90s tabloid story needs to be retold, but When they're done in such an interesting way, it does give this whole context that, of course, when I was young, I missed. And so it is gratifying in that sense. So that was was my pick. And um, I'm excited to see what Molly Lambert does next. So let's get to music. I don't know if we've had this one on here before. No, we haven't. I'll start. So there were 
three, four artists that I really love this year. The first was Rosalia, and the album is Motomami. She's an amazing Spanish artist whose presence has been growing, and I'm just super impressed that she actually engineers her own beats. Like, she's a phenomenally, phenomenally talented person, and all of her songs slap, so it was an easy, easy to recommend. Surprising no one, Beyonce's Renaissance was an album that I heard in the background of basically every home that I was in (laughs) in the back half of the year. And so it was also a companion to so many great gym sessions. And it actually speaks to, I think, a larger trend that I felt in music this year, which is that this felt like a year when music became very, very gay, like across the board. Like, Drake did a weird kind of gay dance vibe album. Beyonce's Renaissance seems incredibly queer from not only just the motifs in the music, but also the just the language, everything about it feels like it's got a, at least a heavy queer influence. I'll say that. Rosalia is bisexual. Bad Bunny, of course, was like kissing men on stage and continuing to break barriers that way. So I think we're in a weird moment where pop music, at least, is like very, very gay, which of course makes me very concerned that there'll be an incredible cultural backlash against like gay people, because I think that's usually what tends to happen. But the other two, and these are two albums at the end that I really liked because they are usually in my head in competition, but their albums came out at the same time this year as actually a month ago. And I just loved both of them equally. And that is Taylor Swift's Midnights and Carly Rae Jepsen's The Loneliest Time. Taylor Swift's album is sonically pristine and it has a lot of that 80s vibe that I love. Carly Rae Jepsen's album, it is maybe not as good as Taylor Swift's Midnights, which makes me feel bad as a diehard Carly Rae Jepsen fan. But she also has an amazing track called the title track, The Loneliest Time, that she was a co-pro with um, Rufus Wainwright, which was really great and its own kind of gay romp. So those were my favorites for music this year. My music year was really straightforward. I did Spotify wrapped. The one artist on my Spotify wrapped, you guys, was Beyonce. All of the most listened to songs, the album, it was just Beyonce all the way down, Turtles all the way down. It's Beyonce all the way down in my land. (laughs) So I really loved Renaissance. I feel like it it also came at like a, a moment in time when I needed to experience some fun and joy without actually like going out because I I couldn't go out. And it brought kind of brought the party to the house, which was really nice. (laughs) And really fun. I agree, Eric, it's pretty gay as an album. It's like feels like a very queer album for Beyonce put out. I really loved it. I also really enjoyed Rosalia's Motomami. I listened to that a lot. And so those are my two. And then this was not really an album, but an artist that I listened to a lot this year that I was introduced to by my partner, Tom, is Beverly Glenn Copeland. I don't know if you guys have heard of him. Yeah, he's this really, really beautiful singer, trans African-American singer, who had an album come out called Keyboard Fantasies, which is mostly the album that I listened to. I listened to some of the other songs, some of his other songs. And I think just, you know, was rediscovered by a Japanese record store owner who found Beverly's tape from the 60s, emailed Beverly, who's living in Canada on his own, asking if he had any other copies of the record. Beverly did, sent the copies to Japan. They sold out right away. And 
And so there's been sort of a resurgence and reappreciation of Beverly Glenn Copeland. If listeners haven't heard him and his work, he has this really beautiful, lovely, sort of calm voice. And keyboard fantasies, I would say, is like every song just is this. I don't have the language, I think, to describe music, but I would say that it, like, if you could hear wellness or if you could hear joy, his voice conveys those things or well being. Maybe wellness is not quite the right word, but well being, thoughtfulness, engagement with the world. Just this really beautiful voice, beautiful songs. Played them a lot for the baby to calm her down, and it really worked. So if you have not heard of Beverly Glenn Copeland, and all credit goes to my partner Tom for discovering Beverly and bringing him into our our household. Really lovely. Yeah, I've been seeing um, the name around and maybe a few articles, so I'm excited to check it out. There's also a great little short documentary about Beverly and his work, but also his pioneering of like being a trans black man in the music business in the 60s was not the easiest thing. Anyway, highly recommend. I will be able to check out Beverly's work much easier because thanks to our sponsor, Apple, I started streaming music this year, which I've never done. I know I'm like such a- Prior to now? Prior to now. No, I've never- I still had my CDs. I have records, you know, I like, I think on some principle, I realized like, oh, it's really not good for musicians. Streaming is bad and it's detrimental to musicians. So like, maybe that's a part of why I held out. But also, you know, I'm just like have my Luddite thing where I'm like anti-technology at times. So that's maybe another reason like, and Apple kind of got me where they were like, oh, you want the six month free subscription. I thought, oh, sure. Why not? It is revolutionary, you know, for me. And I think that this was the year, maybe prior to that, actually, that I started to really listen to music again and listen to it much more than news. I do not listen to NPR hardly at all anymore. And my life has improved so much. And I feel like it's as though I like had stopped dreaming, you know, and suddenly like I'm dreaming again, or I I hadn't fallen in love for like 20 years and I fell in love again. Like I cannot believe this hole in my life. Not that I never listened to music, but I haven't gone as hard in many years as I went this year. So that was a, a revelation. And also I got into this thing called NTS, which people have also probably been into for a super long time, but that's just a, it's like a radio network and you can stream that online and they have all these different shows because there are some things, I mean, I appreciate about, you know, Apple Music that I can just follow any inclination and kind of look up anyone, listen to anything. And a lot of times it's stuff that I don't know about. Like if I want to listen to like, you know, one night I went on this like dance hall bender and where I was like looking stuff up on YouTube and listening to Apple Music, whatever. But with NTS, because it's so many DJs from all across the world and they do put things by category, you can... You can learn so much. It's really amazing. It's free. I think you can support it. You know, you should support it if you'd like to, but you can also listen for free. So those were some of the avenues by which I listened. And then actually my favorite thing that I listened to all year, and it's a big hit with my son, is this album that I did get at a record store. There's this Latin music record store in my neighborhood. And um, it's a group called Baby O, the San Martin Tex Malukan. 
And they're a cumbia group. They're really funny. They're kind of campy. There's a lot of stopping and starting. It kind of reminds me of dub in that way that like a song like seems like it never fully like in motion. It'll there be someone talking over it, like an announcer. And then there's kind of like some delay. So I like this funny structure of, of their songs and I cannot find hardly any information about them. And actually when I looked up this group on YouTube, all I could see were these parties happening somewhere in Mexico, but there was no group on stage. So maybe they're just a sound system. I don't know, but they're really funny. And my son loves them and always asks for Baby O. So Baby O, if you're out there, thanks for a great year. All right. Should we wrap up with our, like, objects we can't live without? Yeah, slash scandals. Oh, yeah. Which one would you like to go, Eric? I'll be very quick. So the objects that I could not live without this year are very lame, but very practical. And that is an external monitor for your laptop. I know that we've all been like working from home for a long time. I finally did it and got myself a 24 inch monitor and oh my God, what a game changer. Highly recommend. I use the Asus ProArt, which is less than $300. Highly, highly, highly recommend to anybody that needs to get outside of that 13 inch screen. The second thing is recliner seats at the movies. (laughs) Again, it sounds so lame, but movies are now like all over two and a half hours regularly. And I know so many people and I'm now among them who will not go to see a showing specifically if it is in a theater that does not have reclining seats. So love those recliners. Thank you. Thank you so much, AMC. They are wonderful to have and they make the movie going experience physically durable. All of mine are baby-related. So the two things I probably couldn't have lived without this year is um, a little wrap, a Solly wrap, so I could put the baby in it and go outside because I needed some fresh air. And then you just kind of have the baby there with you, which is nice. And then, I don't know, all the various other little baby things that we had. But you know what? Okay, the thing I really couldn't live without this year, maybe, maybe every year, that goes unmentioned in my life, but I should mention it, is mascara. I can't live without it. I can't live without it. I realized this year that on days when I felt so tired and underslept and run down, you know, let's be real, like after pregnancy and after having a baby, your body is a little bit different, to put it mildly. My hair is different. Everything is a little bit different. And you kind of have to get used to that. But you could put on some mascara and I kind of felt like myself again. And I felt like I could go outside and I felt kind of normal, kind of like back to normal. I just bought two new tubes to replenish my supply, but I think I can't live without mascara. That's my go-to makeup as well. I chose to go the scandal route and I'll just quickly say what my scandal was. So my scandal was the LA City Council tape scandal. That was amazing. It was crazy. I could not believe what those people got caught saying on tape. And, you know, besides all of the racist, homophobic stuff, the just bare political calculus, self-interested calculus that they just like said out loud, I think it was stunning to hear, instructive to hear. I mean, I guess it's kind of sad that a scandal is the thing that would make one engage in local politics you know, more readily or like read more, but I've never refreshed the LA Times 
website more, you know, trying to get updates on what was happening and what the fallout was going to be. So it was just totally mind-blowing. And I think that lots of people felt that way. And I still think Kevin DeLeon should resign. And I actually, the scandal continues because I just heard that he had a physical altercation with some protesters just uh, the other day. So it's a crazy story. But if that's what it takes for people to get engaged with their city, that's what it takes. That's a show waiting to happen. I want to see like an in-depth on like the history of the LA City Council, how those people got there, this scandal, what that means for the future of power sharing in LA. Like that's a great one to end on because it is a fascinating story that I feel like most of us only know the tiniest amount of. And I think most of us also don't realize how much power city council members have, that it, they have yes. an inordinate amount of power. They, Especially in a giant city like Los Angeles, they represent so many constituents. The devil really is in the details with local politics and especially stuff in LA where it gets really complicated with districts and redistricting and county versus city. So um, I hope this has like whipped us all into attention and that in 2023, we will see some exciting changes coming down the pike in L.A. with recent new council members being elected. I'm actually looking forward to seeing what happens. And um, I'll be looking forward to seeing both of you next year in 2023 and getting into a lot more art and books and movies. And I'm going to watch more television finally. And I hope it's a, a bright year. I don't want to say brighter or whatever, because I don't know how bad 2022 was or how, how good any year is, but lady Calculated luck. optimism. There's nothing wrong with it. Let's hope some good things come in 2023. I'm sure they will, along with some other stuff that's not as good. You've been listening to our special Best of 2022 show. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Jiha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. <laughs>